Hello and welcome to the Comedies Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to scintillating, intriguing, fascinating people with incredible stories, tales, and imagination that will inspire comedians like you and me to live this comedy journey on our own terms. Now today's guest is my Asian sister from another father. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> uh, she is absolutely incredible. She was a very successful comic in 2017, but till she made the move of pivoting careers. And I think this is a question that a lot of us as comics or performers should think about when we're doing whatever we're doing, because there are times when we should consider pivoting. And today we're going to look into some of those answers. Joanne Lau is an absolutely um, lovely lady. You're going to love her. Let's welcome Joanne. Thanks. That was, a, that was such a nice intro. I think everyone should lower their expectations immediately by like 100%. <laughs> You'll leave us like mildly interested in her. She was okay. <laughs> like you can listen to this in the background while you're doing something else important. Um, <laughs> take too much of your attention. Yeah, that kind of a, that kind of an episode. <laughs> well, at least, you're, I mean, at least, uh... Sometimes I see it with performers or acting where it's too far the other way. <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah, those actors who are like always on, like when you go to Edinburgh and you're just out for coffee with them and you're like, whoa, um, no, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm never on, just constantly just this low level off. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for it. I mean, like, I, I mean... I find some if I'm in a social setting or whatever, I have to get away from it because I want to try and. There's times where you need to focus and get shit done. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I used to. Well, I started writing in this pub, which was down the road from a theater school. <laughs> which is, yeah, that's that's a. T Thankfully, I'd done so many Edinburghs, I could just tune it out. But like, yeah, when oh trust me, when a bunch of theater students are together, it's like. 10 people who are on all competing with each other and then you add alcohol to the mix and then you're trying to write quietly in the corner um yeah that that was that was a fun experience <laughs> so is it in a sketch no. <laughs> <laughs> gosh it's like you know tragedy plus time equals comedy it hasn't been enough time yet so oh give it a few more years <laughs> yeah 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 so therapy for everyone that doesn't know about you, Joanne, like tell us a bit about how you got into comedy and then later on tell us a bit what, how you shifted into being a screenwriter. Ah, so I got, it's a really roundabout thing where I got into comedy through writing. So clearly my accent isn't British, um, but I have been in the UK for 15 years now. <laughs> Holy, no, I'm totally, I came here in 2004. That's ages ago. That's 18 years. Oh my gosh, I'm old. Sorry, I'm just having like a like awareness of my mortality um, live. Um, anyways, came here in 2004 and I was trying to write kind of mass emails to keep in contact with my friends back home in Canada. And then um, I just got tired of just spamming people. So I was like, look, if you're interested in my life, like I'm not going to force you to read it. I'll just post it on the internet. So I started a blog. That's how long ago this was. Um, and I was like, if you're interested, you can check in every so often and I'll just post on the blog, my adventures. Um, but through writing that, like the handful of people who did bother reading it really liked it. And they were like, oh, you're so funny. You should try stand-up comedy. And 
I mean, I grew up in a middle-sized city in Canada and like knew nothing about stand-up comedy, like nothing. Um, and so like I'd gone to see improv shows a few times because um, we're kind of an improv city, Calgary, but like zero stand-up comedy really. So I pretty much just Googled stand-up comedy and saw the bunch of courses listed and just picked the first one and signed up to it because I was like, yeah, that seems fun. Um, so I did uh, a stand-up comedy course, which was super fun and I really enjoyed it, but it was also a total waste of money in my very practical Asian sense. Um, and so I just thought to myself, if I'll do a hundred gigs and um, if it goes somewhere great and if it doesn't, at least I got my money's worth. So I, I forced myself to do a hundred gigs, but basically I just lost count because I kind of almost immediately fell in love with it. It's, um, you know, the adrenaline rush of it all. And the way I think of it is that it kind of tapped into the inner neediness and approval seeking uh, part of my nature. So if you're addicted to approval seeking, oh my gosh, stand-up comedy is like <laughs> heroin. It's it's terrible. <laughs> In that sense, it's like immediate love and you're like, I need more now. So I think by the end of my career, I, oh, I, I've totally lost count by estimates though. I think I've done like well over 300 gigs um, by the time I realized what the hell am I doing? So the reason I stopped was because naturally I'm quite shy. Like I, I really don't, I'm really not an eloquent person as it's coming across. I'm not, like I feel so awkward talking and especially in front of groups and so every night was like torture for me. And for some reason I kept doing it. And I don't know if it's the approval seeking or if it was like, you know, the, the Chinese upbringing where you're like, I don't want to do this mom. And she's like, you're going to do it and you're going to do it well. Um, and it's like, you will bring honor to the family. So I, I just kept forcing myself to do it. Cause I just, it didn't even cross my mind. Like if you don't like it, you can just stop. Um, and in a kind of like sad sob story way, it was that my work visa um, ended and I couldn't find a job in time to extend it. And so there was a six month gap in between my work visas. And then um, that reset the count for citizenship. So basically after five years, I think it is on a work visa. Now we're getting into immigration law. I'm so sorry, <laughs> this is so dull. Um, basically uh, it resets your count if you have any gap at all. So then I had to, I basically lost like two and a half years of my life in that sense. Um, and so I had to restart and I was picking up in comedy. I had a, um, like I signed to this amazing agency and through no fault of their own, like we just didn't know. They were like, we thought you could have gotten citizenship by now or that we could have done something with your visa, but we can't and you're stuck and we can't make money off of you. So I felt like I worked my ass off. I did well in all these competitions. I was gigging like several gigs a night. You know, those kind of comics that are like overachievers. I was one of those. And then, um, yeah, and then I signed to this amazing agency and I thought I'd done it. I'd worked so hard, it paid off. It had paid off. And they were like, we can't make money from you, so we're gonna drop you. And so that was devastating, really devastating. Cause I was like, I'm finally out of my crappy day job. And it's like, no, you're stuck in it for another few years until you're a citizen. But in that time, I really, I remember sitting at the pub, sobbing my eyes out to my then boyfriend. <laughs> Cause I was like, I work so hard. For nothing um and he was like well just reassess your life he's like really why are you doing this what do you want and I was like well my life goal was to always be the next Tina Fey and so I was I think I was like 
but but the part of her career I wanted was like say running 30 Rock or you know writing Mean Girls or something and I was like I think I want to be a writer because <laughs> I'm uh, like I hate I hate performing I just like writing and um yeah so from there I just started reading all I could about screenwriting and um to that boyfriend's credit he bought me screenwriting books where he's like check these out because he did he did writing and directing and stuff anyway so he kind of knew which ones were relevant for me um and then I just started trying and entering competitions and then that took off so that was great so yeah that was I mean I make it sound a lot easier than it was it was really hard because when you're a stand-up comic do you notice people just throw things at you to write as if you can just do it it's kind of like they're just I don't know it's almost like a hey you like you know you like Japanese food it's like go and be a sushi chef you can do it and you're like no 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 there are different things different things um so I don't know that's maybe not the right metaphor but like that's kind of how it feels do you, do you know what I mean um I don't know a bit about being thrown to write stuff but I know about what's it called people having a misconception and like they expect comedians to be super confident and like really out there and really sort of cool and like mm -hmm. heroes that they look up to in a movie screen when the yeah. fact that a lot of us you know if you look at the logistics and the logic of it why would someone want to get up on stage every night of the week and make a complete tit of themselves? Right. A lot of family trauma. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that inner sadness that we're looking to fill. Um, yeah, it's no, the, I think anyways, I was throwing a lot of stuff to write when I was a stand up comic. Like they were like, yeah, just help us write a sitcom, help us write sketches. And I had no idea what I was doing um, in hindsight now. Uh, like I was handing in eight page sketches going like, this is normal, right? I can add two more pages. And they're like, no, no, no. And it's like, you know, multiple locations, <laughs> you know, live animal props. And then sitcoms, like we just had no idea what we were doing, like a group of comics trying to write a sitcom. But, um, and then oddly, when you're a writer, you discover, yeah, they're throwing all the writing opportunities at the standups and all the writers are like, but we know how to do this. We're just not interesting or famous <laughs> to put on a screen. Um, mm. Anyhow, the point is, like I had to learn a whole new skill and I thought my skills would transfer over, but they did not. Um, and yeah, so it was like picking up a new skill, learning it from scratch and wrote, they always say, get your first script done and over with, cause it's going to be shite. And they're so right. So I just got that written very quickly, like in a month and then just kept trying after that. So, yeah. Mm, that's, that's what you said there is, is very, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, with, yeah, people think just because you do comedy, you can do all these different things. And it's like with, do you know Addison Ray, that TikTok star? No. Well, okay, I'll give a surmise on her. It's nothing much, but she's a, she's got lots of followers on TikTok. She's a well-known dancer, but mm -hmm. she was made, she was interviewing UFC fighters like on the fight, but she didn't really know much about it. She's not like, done journalism and she's she did a little bit, but she's not like a qualified journalist or qualified interviewer. It's just because she's famous and she's got clout. And as I was saying, like the film she's in, that's that. I mean, what you said there is brilliant. Like people are getting things just because they got clout and they're a big name rather than can they do the job? It's the same with um, Terminator Genesis. Amelia Clark, she has no role excuse for playing Sarah Connor. She's. I haven't seen, I like her. I haven't seen it. Um lovely lady yes uh, great, great, uh, she's great in game of thrones but they just put her in because she was famous for that character rather than someone who was a good fit for it oh okay so it was, it was miscasting i guess yeah 
do not sense. But uh, yeah, it's um. At any rate, it's 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 interesting when um. Yeah, it's like the grass is always greener on the other side. I think because now that I am just just a full time writer, I'm like, I wish I did stand up again so that people would actually offer me stuff to write. Um, but yeah, it's it's fine. Would you would you do it on the side or something like just do a couple of gigs here and there and say I'm still in it but mostly a writer? <laughs> no, so I made that mistake. So I stopped doing stand up. I think pretty much in twenty. I want to say 2013. That seems like a while ago, but I stopped doing it. And then I think it took me two years to get over the trauma of it. Because honestly, by the end, if I if you showed up at a gig and it got canceled, I'd be like, yes, like that's how much <laughs> performing. It's terrible. Like honestly, one time it was a Saturday. I went all the way into central London, got to Piccadilly Circus. The venue was closed. I'm like, what is going on? And I called the promoter and he said, I'm so sorry. He said, I'd be furious if I were you. I'm like, no, this is fantastic. Good night. I'm like, this is awesome. So um, clearly, yeah, I just, I, I hated performing, but it took me two years to go over the trauma. I do have the memory of a goldfish. So that helps. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll like help somebody do like a gig. It seems like a fun idea. Um, and it's even worse after you take a break to go back to it, because if you're doing it regularly, you have a set, you've got it memorized, you're used to it. Um, if you don't, you have to write a set from scratch. Like you can't use jokes from two years ago because sometimes they've dated. You're not, they're just not fresh anymore. So it was, I'm like, yeah, I'll just casually write a 10 minute set. <laughs> drop a tight 10 at a pub after work like um yeah no that was awful I hated it I felt so bad because I'm like I, I just I wasn't confident and I remembered exactly why I hate doing it um the late hours like the stress uh the performance anxiety all of it I was like oh my gosh this is this is yeah I'm like now I understand why I stopped so that was like enough of a reminder that I haven't had to gig or felt the urge to since 2015 <laughs> so so if, if someone's like listening in now and they're doing a comedy or they're doing acting or they're doing all sorts of, you know, they're chasing what they thought they wanted. Um, what from your experience, what what questions would you say they need to ask themselves and think about in order to um, go in the right direction? Well, I guess it's kind of like, are you doing this because you enjoy it or because there's this momentum that's carrying you. It's kind of going well. It might pay off like really well, I think, because the other thing is that um, in that that six month gap that I had to go back to Canada, like, so I started stand up. Unfortunately, I think, I don't know, because when I started back in 2007, there weren't that many people who looked or sounded like me. And so I think I got a lot of exposure really quickly and I was not ready for it. I was, I mean, I can say this now because it's so long ago. I was awful. Um, and I really cringe at my old stuff. And it's then, but suddenly I was there in the finals of everything. Like the tagline was always a finalist, never a bride, Joanne Lau. Um, but it's like, I was in the finals of everything and doing all these crazy things, having all these amazing experiences, doing pilots on BBC and stuff. I wasn't ready, but I was like, I'll just kind of let this momentum carry me because it might pay off and who knows where it'll go. Um, but in my hearts, heart of hearts, I wasn't like, I, I just didn't want to be a stand-up per se. Like that wasn't my dream. I, I wanted to run my own sitcom. So um, I was just kind of doing it as a means to that end. But what happened was 
suddenly I went home for six months and, you know, cause it's not like I was famous or anything. It was just that I had this kind of heat and momentum, just a, a slight bit, just a slight burning sensation on the tongue. Um, so after six months, everyone just forgot about me when I came back. Cause like I hadn't been gigging, nobody knew who I was. There was the new crop of, uh, competition finalists. And so I went from yay to like, who are you? Um, so I had to start all over again from the bottom, um, really find my voice and stuff. And then again, as I say, worked my ass off to get back to where I was. Cause I thought that was the only way you get successful. So repeated all the same patterns, then got the agent and everything, then lost it all. But that's really what made me reassess what I want from life. It took that many fail- failures and that much hard work to get to a point where I was like, is this worth it? It's like, wait a minute, you kind of need to, yeah, I don't know, slow down and really assess. Um, my other thing is, I guess, is just um, like, can you deal with rejection, I guess, is if you're pursuing this all, because one thing I did notice after going away and coming back and stuff is like the people who made it weren't necessarily the people who were the funniest. I don't know if you've seen, it's like, it's just the people who just kept going and you're like, oh, wow, like they're huge now and they got really good. So it's like, you just got to put in the time and the effort. Like it's really just, it sounds so cheesy, but it's true. Like if they didn't give up and they kept going and it paid off. So. It's a funny thing, isn't it? That is, I've, I've seen it so many times. I mean, not not all of the ones that are, that are making it are, not as not as funny as they should be but i think that because there are a lot of incredible ones as well but it's it's there are quite a few instances they even sort in line with the apollo where i've seen them and they've like i've, I've not seen comics that are barely known do 10 times better than them and you're thinking that they're the one on tv not them it's it's it is funny mm-hmm. it's it's lynn ruth miller uh, said to me that it's the ones that yeah as you say no shame the ones that are like desperate ravenous dogs that get ahead <laughs> Yeah. I also think though, it's like, um, some people just have this confidence or belief that they're, they can do it. It's like the, I don't know. I I never had that. (laughs) It's just kind of, if somebody was like, you're shit. I'm like, okay. (laughs) It's just like, I just didn't have that fight in me, I think. So I think if, but some people, oh, I remember I was talking to, um, is it Sarah Campbell and Grania McGuire? This is back in Edinburgh. And they were, I was telling them about the terrible gig I just had, where literally myself and the compare went to, went to different corners of backstage after the gig and cried. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Um, it was at 11, no, was it at midnight? It was either at 11 or midnight at like, I can't remember, was it the Three Sisters or something? Anyways, the crowd were super drunk. It was a Saturday. I was just like wandered in there late, not knowing the vibe and was like super cheery, nice. And they were not super cheery, nice. <laughs> they were really mean. And I got heckled to, to shit. Um, and then the compare had to go back out and clean it up. Anyways, it was awful. Um, but I, I bumped into them like the next day and I was telling them about this terrible gig. And they were like, no, if somebody heckles you, you have to be like, no, you stop because mama's talking right now. And I'm like, what? Like in that was- <laughs> foreign attitude for me because I don't know if it's like the Asian-ness in me that I'm just like must submit to authority or other people I'm like and if somebody tells me I'm crappy then I'm just like yes I must do better um but I just don't have that that drive or that confidence that say other more successful comics um and who are good at dealing with hecklers had um it's just it's just not a part of my nature so yeah again like I just basically I learned 
through um learn the hard way that stand-up comedy is not my thing it does not suit my personality type hiding in a dark room behind a laptop having other people who are far better looking say my words it, it's much more my style so that's like that's yeah I basically learned that I'm like oh yes yes that's right I got into this because of writing I should go back to writing so that so effectively um look at it's basically if you enjoy it and if you actually like doing it rather than what you think it will give you. Yeah, exactly. That and yeah, I mean, you really have to look at what you would enjoy and why you're doing it. Yeah, I never did enjoy it. <laughs> so there you go. What about the bits where it went well and you got the laughs? You, did, you didn't like those bits? Um, I would get... I would never trust it. You know, it's like sometimes I'd have amazing gigs where uh, I, I just didn't understand why or how. And also, I mean, my day job was in science and it's like scientifically that part of my brain just couldn't understand. There's too many uncontrolled variables in comedy. And if something works, I'm never sure if it's because of my hypothesis and the things that I'm manipulating or something in the room. So, I mean, it's like room temperature, who went before you, who went after you what those people did earlier in the day. Um, like it's just, there's too many factors and I never understood and I never felt. So all the successes I attributed to chance and randomness or luck um, and yeah, all the failures I just took on. <laughs> so I basically was like a terrible mess by the end of stand-up comedy. Like, yeah, I think I was a self-loathing mess. So, yeah. But I think it has an effect on a lot of comics. I mean, it's, it's a very... Um... Like it's the schedule as well is quite unpredictable a lot of the times you hear like people posting gigs like with Philip Simon he says uh, with comedy someone will post a gig one like a couple of hours and then boom he's got done a gig like he wouldn't know what would happen during his day like there's not as much planning or organization of your day and which right. I mean I find that a bit yeah you know, I, I like to plan my day because you like to prepare for things if, if your head's all over the place it's a bit yeah, I don't like to live like that. But. I mean, there's two sides to that. So like, um, I know comics who will control down to the time and meal type that they eat. Like they need to eat X number of minutes before they're on stage so that their <laughs> blood sugar level is at a high. They're not too tired from digestion. Um, it's not too heavy in their stomach, blah, blah, blah. Like that sort of thing. Um, and then people who do like, uh, like kind of improv exercises right before they're on so that they're on. Um, yeah. I, yeah, there was one comic who like literally would just look at objects around the room and just name them. And she'd be like, you know, table, chair, like dog, towel. Like she would just do this in, like in an insane way before she was on just so that her brain was in the moment and stuff like people prep so much. Um, and that's one hand. But then on the other hand, like um, the other game the comics and I used to play is like mouthing the person's set while they're on stage performing because, you know, they're set inside out because they deliver it with the same words, same timing and same style every time to the point where you, if you gig enough and you know the other person's set enough, like you'll see them enough times and they'll see your set enough time that you can perform each other's sets. So you kind of need some spontaneity in it. And so I always, um, when I perform, that's the other bad thing I used to do was, um, right. I never could memorize my set. I'm terrible at when I'm put on the spot, um, having like just memory blanks. So we'd always write keywords on my hand. So most of the time when I'm performing, I'll just be staring at my hand, which again, it's not great. Um, but yeah, because I'd change the set order all the time because I would just get so bored 
of doing the same set every night. And I get so self-conscious delivering it the same way on everything, especially when you know that the comics at the back of the room have seen it like, you know, 30 times because you've gigged with them that many times in the year. So it's kind of, um, yeah, it's, there's two that you can over-prepare and you can, you can under-prepare and stare at your hand. Like, I think there's probably countless comedy photos of me online, like just looking at my hand and you're like, what is she doing? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm just ill-prepared um, that. It's the, do you know uh, Stephen Bartlett? No. He's the youngest guy in The Apprentice and he's, he runs a really great podcast called Diary of CEO. Fantastic podcast. And he's one of the, he was brought up in a poor family and um, he used to do this thing where he was, he would make, sell a lot of sweets in his school, but he would mm -hmm. do terrible in terms of grades and all that. Right. And um, effectively, he says that insecurity, like seeing other children wear all these nice clothes that he wanted, was a big drive in getting him where he is today. Wow. I think I, I've, all my insecurities, I think, hold me back. <laughs> it's, um, I think, if I think about it. I mean, I didn't grow up in a super poor family, but my parents were immigrants. They owned a Chinese restaurant. It's like that kind of story. But on the other hand, my mom was like super ambitious. Well, not ambitious, aspirational, I suppose. Um, and so she really pushed all of us kids. So hence it's like three kids who were all kind of in medically type professions and stuff. Um, but not, yeah. I'd definitely say I'm like the black sheep of the family in the sense I'm the one without doctor in front of my name. So, but that's kind of made me feel like, not that I had to prove myself or anything, but probably more like there's something wrong with me. And that's probably held me back. If anything, I would say that my upbringing and all the hardships and stuff that I went through, it wasn't the happiest of childhoods, I would say. Um, I don't, how many, okay. Well, you know, when stand-up comics are like, no, 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 I'm like super successful and great. And they're like, but I've had a really, really happy childhood, blah, 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 blah. I actually believe them. Like, you know, a lot of people think that like only miserable people can be successful stand-up comics. Because I think you can be, have too much misery <laughs> um, and that can hold you back. Um, but anyhow, the point is like, yeah, I wouldn't say that other people's successes um, inspire me or make me more motivated. Um, yeah, I don't know. I disagree with that statement, basically. No, fair enough, fair enough. What, what, but the thing is, we're all, we're all different. I mean, like to say that what you said there about, and what you said there said about, you know, them saying, oh, I had a great child, had this and that. And, you know, it depends on the person, isn't it? What what works for them? It's, we're all different. I mean, you know, I, I like, I, I like the performance stage, but I don't like the writing. <laughs> so Hi. that's where me and you sort of, different way but if we had the same opinion on everything wouldn't it make a very boring conversation yes yes it would i was thinking of what i was trying to say and how i was going to express it what i was trying to say i think it depends on your childhood trauma as to whether or not it helps you succeed or doesn't i think for me it was like oftentimes i was kind of made to feel that what i had to say was not valuable or interesting or that i wasn't valuable or interesting and therefore when it comes to a profession like stand-up comedy where you're like, guys, you have to listen to me because I'm valuable and interesting. Uh, yeah, that did not work. Whereas in with writing, I feel like, well, they can't see you or hear you. They're, they're listening to someone else who is valuable and interesting saying your words. You're kind of sneaking in 
your thoughts and feelings under the radar and therefore it's more worth listening to because somebody else is saying them. Um, so that's kind of, I think, why writing suits me a lot better and probably my childhood upbringing a lot better is my thoughts on that. And what is the feeling you get when you see your work performed by others? What's, why does it make you feel so good to see someone performing it? It doesn't make me feel great. I still cringe. I am one of those people who can't watch their own work. Uh, no matter how great the actor is and how well they're doing it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is all so embarrassing. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I like that my work is out there. <laughs> um, and it's nice to hear people like discuss it and stuff afterwards and understand maybe what I was doing with a certain metaphor or something like that. But um, to actually watch it in the moment oh my gosh, it's like so anxiety inducing. I am pretty much like a twisted little knot in my chair. Um, so, cause I've written a few theater things and then yeah, watching those live has been like, I'm so grateful it's on and everyone's doing a great job and the director's awesome, but I'm, I'm like a little pretzel in my chair. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it's, it's not nice. I don't know, can you watch your own performances? You know, stand-up comics would always record themselves and then watch it afterwards to see what they could correct. I probably tried that maybe three times, never watched a single bit of the footage. Like, and yeah. I, when it goes really bad and it's a really painful one. Yes, it's bloody hard. Uh, there's some of, some of them that I've not been able to watch, but with the ones that I have been able to watch, I, I, I watch it, get through the pain straight away. And then, <laughs> then uh, I, I'll look at it again later on and then start trying to analyze it bit by bit and then try and put something together for the next one. <laughs> wow. That's, um, I've never had the bravery to do that. I just, I couldn't relive that moment, no matter if it was good or bad. Cause I was like, I, I always thought if it was a good gig, um, then what if I notice a mistake I made and it ruins that memory and, and if it was bad, then why live through that trauma again? I'm pretty painfully aware probably of what went wrong. Um, so yeah, that's, I just, I couldn't, <laughs> you're a braver person than I. No, there is, there is a, there is a lot of uh, insecurity in that as well, because I, I'm a bit, one thing I'm a bit scared of, sometimes I tend to overestimate myself a bit in different things. So I, I, I'm a bit scared of that side of myself. Hmm. And also, I've seen that with other people, like doing comedy, like they will say, oh, I've stormed the gig. But then I've seen it, I've been in the audience and it's like, no, you haven't. You've got a couple of titters. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think, yeah, that's just not a fruitful exercise for me to, to do. But that's kind of why I like the writing, because it's all written there. You can go away, revisit it, edit it, change it. It's like not the final thing i think the part of the magic of stand-up is that it's just you the stage that moment that night and it's never like if you weren't at that gig and sure it can be like you know record or something but you've kind of missed a bit of the magic of it um which kind of is recreated in theater a little bit because again it's like it's all that night and even though it's the same play same actors and so on um but the, each performance is a little bit different and it's like if you've missed that one you've missed that one and that it's gone so so with um so with stand up and like being in theater it's uh, and being like writing and all of that 
Mm-hmm. There are, I'm sure there's some things that you have taken over from stand-up into your career, new career now as a screenwriter. Even though, like, there were a lot of bad things, there were some good things as well, there are things that you took from it. Like, in each job mm-hmm. I've, I've done crap at, I've always taken a little tiny bit on to other things. Like, even from my degree and the way I do things, it's, there's always mm-hmm. little things you take from your experience, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. I would definitely say that comedy is my comfort zone. So I started writing comedy and even now, like I wrote this hard hitting play about child abuse and immigration and people read it and they were like, this is hilarious. And I'm like, is it though? (laughs) So because it's like, I'll be trying to write something serious, but um, I just can't bring myself to write pure drama. I find it really hard. mostly because I don't want it to get melodramatic. Uh, But it's also like, I can't take, in a way, maybe it's a self-esteem issue. It's like, I can't take what I have to say too seriously. Um, But I also am just terribly aware from stand-up comedy of boring people. And I'm like, I don't want to waste your time. So it's like, I want you to enjoy reading about this like issue that I have to say. So actually for the last few years, like especially during the pandemic, like I've been thrown subjects to write about that are really serious like a lot of issues about racism and anti-asian hate and stuff um but everyone's like we know that you're going to do this with a delicate touch because you're not going to be too like melodramatic about it or or like overly like sob story tragedy um not not that it's not a tragedy it's a terrible tragedy um but they're like you're not gonna yeah just bore the shit out of people and bring them really low you're gonna tell us the facts in an interesting way hopefully (laughs) and like you know keep it light and informative um but still address the issues and what they're about so that's kind of i hate writing about races it gets me so low so it's like while the play itself might be quite light and funny and stuff it's like as i'm doing the research i'm like sobbing at my desk because the stories are so horrible But when i translate it though for the audience i still have a bit of that stand-up comic in me who's like must get a laugh a second um, so I don't know it's it's definitely translated into my work and yeah and again with like I, I write I'm writing tv drama and stuff now and it's like um but tv drama doesn't have to mean that it's not funny so like if you read like Breaking Bad is counted as like one of the greatest tv dramas if you read the pilot it's freaking hilarious it's and it's not even in the dialogue like his stage directions like Vince Gillian's stage directions are just uh, like a, a joy to read um and so I take a lot of inspiration from that because yeah sometimes I will stick to like quite heavy dialogue but like I wrote a period drama but the stage directions might be quite light and interesting and good to read and stuff so that at least the script reader will keep flipping the pages um which is the goal really so yeah I think I've taken that from stand-up comedy um yeah so with what you said that I've done a couple of acting courses and and I, I think this is a wrong stereotype in a way, but they say that a lot of comedians make great actors. And I think in some ways it's a sweeping statement and that's sort of deep putting actors down a bit in it to say that, oh, you're a comedian, you'll make a great actor. You don't know. Yeah. I having, again, when you're a comedian, they force these things on you. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> um, and so I know for a fact, like comedians, cannot always act. I will say, have you noticed that actors who are like, I went to drama school and then I'm going to try stand up. They're freaking amazing at it because 
they just naturally have a stage presence and this confidence on stage. Mm-hmm. I, anyways, I have noticed it works better the other way around. I think actors make better stand-ups. Like just, just they have a better um, starting point, shall yeah. we say? Like, so perhaps they make better amateur stand-ups. We all start at, like they start at a higher place than most normal um, other civilians would. <laughs> Anyhow, the point is, um, yeah, no, I, I don't. I, but I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule. And some some comedians are just fantastic actors and have just lucked out that way. Um, it also depends on the role, right? You really need to be suited to it. And I think maybe I just wasn't suited to the roles I was given. Oftentimes, I felt like they were calling me in because they were they really struggled to find an East Asian actress. Oh my gosh! Okay, example: <laughs> I was called in to audition for a really like this American play where this East Asian character. Is this okay, having listened to me now by now, you'll know why this was hilarious. And this this audition should, if you imagine it, make you cringe. It was this East Asian female character who was coincidentally a writing student in the play, um, who seduces her professor. And so she's oozing with sexuality, but she's also having an affair with one of the other students. And it's like they called in me, and I'm like reading this, and I started reading the lines, which are quite sexual and like powerful. And the director just started laughing and I started laughing and I did not get the part. And I was like, fair, very good choice. I really should not have been called in for this. But I think they were desperate for East Asians in London with a with an American accent. <laughs> I was like, wow, somebody's casting director got desperate. Um, so, yeah, those are the, a lot of the times I'm like, I think I'm being called in because of the color of my skin, not necessarily because of my comedy style or the way I look or the way I I. Yeah, anyways, is um that was a particularly funny um audition disaster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, um it was the play, I think it's called Seminar, but like um do you know the actress is it Hetienne Park? She was in Hannibal. But she's like really like attractive and very like kind of powerful as an actress, I think, like in a quiet sort of way. Like she played the New York like Broadway version of this of this character. If that tells you anything about how miscast um, the, the like the idea that I could play this was, but anyhow, I, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a bit. Oh my god, it's a bit like it's, it's like one of those sentences you get with people. They say, "Oh, I have a friend called Bob. He's Asian. Do you know him?" Do you know what that's happened to me in my life, and I've actually. <laughs> Yes, actually, I I do. I, I, I yeah, I did like you know piano lessons with her. It's just kind of like bullshit. Um, so yeah, that has happened. And also, like I've run into a friend of a friend who's been like, they're like, I've got a friend from Canada who's like also Chinese. Do you know her? And I'm like, holy shit, we're related. It's like, um, <laughs> anyways. So yes, that that has um backfired a few times in my life because yeah, I guess I guess somehow we do all know each other. Oh my God! So what's what's been a what's been a really funny instance of that? <laughs> no, honestly, like it was just yeah, being introduced. I'm like, oh my, you, I think you're married. Your your brother's married to my cousin. <laughs> it was just like, anyway, that was that was yeah, the, that happened. Um, but yeah, that's it, it's yeah that that is it's funny that they assume yeah. So so you're basically saying like with comedy acting roles, right? If you're Asian, you've got lots of lots of tick boxes. <laughs> yeah, well, you get thrown a lot of East Asian roles written by white writers, which may or may not be great comedy roles. 
Um, I mean, I've certainly had to audition. Well, back in the day, like I don't do any acty stuff that I haven't done for like maybe a decade. Um, but like, you know, roles with accents, uh, things like that. I think I used to get thrown a lot of those where I'm like, great. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I feel a bit racist if I start doing the accents of any of my relatives. I don't feel right if I start doing like, if I try and do impressions of my relatives, it doesn't feel right. Really? I mean, my whole stand-up set back in the day was built. I mean, this granted, this was like before 2010, but like was built around impressions of my mom. And like basically all the comedy promoters were like, we want you to come back, but we want you to do more of your mom character until it became like, can you do the whole set like like your mom character? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, that was my shtick back in the day was that I did a whole set as my mom. And then I started getting accusations from white comics that it was racist. Um, and then I got other white comics. It was funny. It was, I kind of stayed out of the debate because I was just like, well, I'll just do my thing. Um, and it didn't feel racist to me at the time because I was like, well, this is what I grew up with. And this is, this is the reality of what it was like. Yeah. And furthermore, I felt like um, it was almost like getting the elephant in the room acknowledged so that I could actually talk about what I wanted to say. So oftentimes when I went on stage, I'd almost have to, like, it's not apology, like literal, but I'd have to address the fact that I don't look like everybody else on this lineup. And it was really boring and I didn't want to talk about my race. So in a way, by using the accent and just letting them go, okay, I kind of know who this person is, how they're placed, how they work. Um, then I could just talk about other stuff. So I could talk about other stuff in the accent that I couldn't do without a lot of intro and prep um, if I wasn't using the accent. So that's, it was a shortcut to it. And especially in a place like, I've noticed the UK compared to Canada is very classist and like everybody, even now with my theater, like writing or TV writing, but weirdly, mostly theater, I get this feedback. It's like, what did this character's parents do for a living? I'm like, why does that matter? It's like, I, this, their parents aren't even in the play. It's like, but they're like, we want to know where they grew up. What's their education level? How much money do they make? I'm like, why does this matter? I'm like, oh, because I'm in the UK. And so it's like, um, but yeah, doing the accent on stage as a comedian was a shortcut to that. In a way, it was like, I don't know if when you write scripts, you have like brackets, like character name, age, like general description, right? It was like, it was a shortcut to doing that. It'd be like, hi, I'm Duane, brackets, like age, like, you know, working class Asian or something like that. It was like their shortcut to go, okay, I'm comfortable now. I can listen to what you have to say. Because otherwise they're sitting there in the audience going, what did your parents do for a living? How much money do you make? What's your education level? So it was like, um, so anyways, that's kind of why I did it. But interestingly, I was told that Mark Watson started doing a, like a Welsh character of his father and stuff. And like, I don't know if he got a lot of like as much um, criticism I would say for doing his character as I did, certainly. And it started really undermining my confidence doing it. And when I took the six month break, I took that as an opportunity to come back when I came back to drop that accent and just talk as a normal person and kind of rebel and just talk about what I wanted to talk about. So anyways, that was a long answer to um, <laughs> your question. But uh, yeah, I, I think there is a time and place to use that accent for your purposes. Um, Cause in a way it kind of, yeah, it helped me to say things that I wanted to say rather than what I felt compelled to to make the audience comfortable. Yeah, no, no. Whenever I've tried to do any jokes about my um, 
when I've done certain things, like I don't know what it is. They did they do they assume that I'm but I am pumped from that culture and it's right, yeah, it is mostly white people that are say, saying that. Yeah. Which is always found quite interesting. But this is turning into a woke debacle. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting is that like um Nigel Ng does the Uncle Roger character now, and I yeah. love it because and that's the, all my Asian friends and I love it because we're like, this is like our uncles. This is real. This is authentic. Like I recognize it and it's funny and it's for me. It's like, I don't think he's doing this for a white audience. I think he's doing it for us like Asian kids who grew up in a Western culture and have relatives like this. And I think that it's good and amazing and, fun and, and very, very funny. So anyhow, it's, it's just interesting that all these years later, after I got all that shtick, um, when I started, when I was a brand new comic, didn't know my ass or my elbow, did this literally in the first year at the behest of white promoters and got in so much trouble that like now he's doing like millions of views on YouTube and it's the same thing. And it's like, anyways, yeah, it's just really interesting that he's still doing that. I'd love to see a sitcom based on Uncle Roger. Me too. He should write one and I would watch it. <laughs> and then he should hire me for the writing team. Um, yeah. <laughs> It would be, yeah, there's, the, I mean, there's a lot of funny things that happen with a lot of my relatives, then they, they themselves could be comics if they wanted to, they, they've got a great sense of humour, but. Do you, okay, here's the thing though, it's like, have you noticed in your friend group, the funniest person is not the stand-up comic, it's like, that's not who becomes the stand-up comic, when, you know, if you think about your friend group from school or something, the funniest kid is like now, <laughs> like a teacher or like a dentist or whatever, but it's like, yeah, I definitely was not the funniest, I would say, of my friends. If anything, I was the most quiet. It is quite funny. In, in terms of, like, my friend groups, yes, I was. But in, well, some of my friend groups, in my current friend group, I'd say, yeah, there wouldn't be any difference. Uh, in terms of classes, I'd say there were quite, a, there were at least a handful of people in my own class that were funnier than me. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. But I, I did, did chip in a bit. But, yeah, I definitely wasn't the funniest. Uh, okay. No, I was the quiet kid at the back of the room, um, like drawing caricatures of the teachers and stuff. That was kind of what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, my journey was a bit different. Like, I got pushed. I got sort of, um, I always wanted to look into getting on stage because I used to make, make people laugh and enjoy doing it. So <laughs> I thought, okay, what was my gate entry to it? And I saw the Cavendish Arms thing and I gave it a pop. But now they charge £10 per person. Uh, for the comedians to perform and um, there's drinks as well that you have to pay for so it's I probably won't be going there again yeah um that's okay so like I go about my life like just hoping and dreaming that I don't offend anybody and that like I don't cause problems in this world and I just try and get by um and I don't think I'm particularly controversial as a, as a person or a comic um but I was banned from the Cavendish Arms um because I refused to bring a friend because at the time I was doing stand-up, like that was not a thing in London. You don't bring a friend. And so they emailed me, one of the people who worked there emailed me because she had seen that I'd done well in competition finals and stuff. So this was when, after my six month break, when I came back and I was starting from the bottom and I was like, oh, that's really nice. They invited me to do this gig. So I showed up to it and they were like, well, where's your friend? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I just didn't understand that they wanted me to do that. And so I was like, oh, I, I didn't bring one. Is that okay? And so they got really huffy with, with me, um, which I was like, oh. And so then 
I really nicely, I felt like tried them like, but you guys asked me to do this. I'm like, yeah. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. And so they were like, uh, no, you have to bring a friend. And I was like, but I don't understand. You're the promoter. Shouldn't you be the person getting anyways, it, it all <laughs> up to the point. Cause I was like, I just don't, I don't get it. Cause isn't your job to, to get people in. And then my job is to perform. Like, isn't that how a comedy gig works? That was not how the man thought the comedy gig worked. And um, yeah, I got banned <laughs> from showing my face there. And I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, I have been banned from a venue. Thank you very much. You are talking to a very dangerous, controversial comic. Thanks. <laughs> oh my God. No, no. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you've touched on a couple of things. There's a few more bringing gigs now. Uh, one of the things that I find a bit disturbing, and I think as a promoter myself, we've got to be a bit aware of it and handle it. There's a bit of a power trip that gets from booking gigs, and I think some some of them need to be a bit aware of that. Like, come on, man, Show, be <laughs> like. Um, I had one comic. Um, I won't say his name, but he's a bit, he's a bit of a. He'll push it as far as he can. So he, um, when I asked him to come on a podcast, he he, he said. What's the fee? I know, but wow. this is not much, but there's a lot more to it because I've had people that have quite a big following and done very well who've not asked me for a fee. Right. Um, and then he goes and, um, what's it called, with the gigs, he's going around a big statement like, you've got to do this, you've got to do that to comics and saying, you guys are idiots for not doing this. And then he tries getting a spot with me and he says, right, normally I do gigs for a couple of hundred pounds but I'll do your gig for 20 quid just because I'm doing new material. And he said, um, what do you say? <laughs> he said, I think I'm a good comic. And then he says, I've got an Amazon prime special. But the thing is like, who's going to fall for that? Like, come on. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that was quite funny about that was, yeah, it's, I think if he does not have an Amazon prime special, like he, he does but it's i don't think it's a big achievement you're just shoving a video up online and it's oh okay unless you've like got like quotes reviews or you're like doing the biggest clubs or like you, you can't really say that you're getting paid 100 or 200 pounds for each gig it's right well okay when he says he has an amazon prime special like did he upload this to amazon or was it actually like paid for by amazon because that's a little bit of a difference he uploaded it Okay, yeah, that's um delusional. <laughs> he sounds delusional. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. I think um I would also say, unfortunately, with stand-up comedy, like it's a lot of people who are quite young sometimes trying it. They the young people who have the energy. Um, and certainly like perhaps they don't realize the amount of admin and hard work it takes to run a gig and the sheer administrative er like um horror show it is. And they're not the most considerate, but I think if you gave them ten years, they would certainly repent of their uh, diva-ish ways and be like, "Oh my gosh, thank you so much for organizing this because it's you know so much effort and you're doing it for free, and you know I get to promote my career while you're doing it." So I don't know. I feel that way. Like, um, I mean, not that I was a dickhead. I was always really polite. Um, but I, I do know in my youth, I think I didn't understand a lot of things that I do now in hindsight, where I'm like. Yeah, but my personality has always been, I don't want to waste your time. So, um, but I have seen people show up and I, I have friends who run gigs. This is how I know this. Cause they're like, oh my gosh, like people coming on, like, what's the running order? What's the running order? And they're like, I'm trying to set up chairs. And you're like, oh yeah, I do definitely empathize and, and feel bad about that. There's definitely a bit of a misbalance between the two, definitely in this, in this, I think, but 
yeah, I think comics, especially in the low end, I see some of it like they, they get a bit of a power trip. And I think you've got to be aware of it as an organiser. Like they mm -hmm. try and make comics jump through a lot of big hoops because it feeds their <laughs> ego. And they say, yeah. oh, if you do this gig, you go in a competition and you go to this gig. But they only run a couple of gigs. But they're not like Jeff Whiting or Funhouse, where if you do the gigs, you can make a good living from it. You only run a couple of paid gigs. But yeah. they try and make it like it's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of, um, but yeah, you just have to have your head screwed on, right? Um, I think being in this industry, because there are a few people who have probably, in, you know, having stepped back from it now, I'm like, they probably have like some serious mental illnesses that could, you know, use some help um, professionally and it would make them a happier person <laughs> um, and things. And you kind of have to tread carefully around these different personality disorders. Um, Cause yeah, I, I definitely know the type of gigs that you mean and stuff. And I mean, yeah, especially as a female comic, oh my gosh, you really have oh. to be aware of like the sleazy promoters and whatnots and, and things like that. So it's just, uh, yeah, that, that, that's out there. That happens. Writing, thankfully a lot safer because <laughs> <laughs> you're not in person with them. Also, it's like, oh, they have to go through so many people. Like, I mean, there's like, execs there's like pr producers there's directly like, there's there's a team it's not just you and some creepy man in the top of a pub right it's um yeah they're they're again much better profession yeah if you're a stand-up comic listening and you're thinking about writing yes you should go into it <laughs> <laughs> so much nicer um That's... you know the other benefit is like i was i was working full-time um doing the several gigs a night thing i was exhausted like like i I sound like I just cry. I don't cry a lot, but like, I, I remember sitting there one day just sobbing. Cause I was just tired, not, not depressed, just tired. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I can't keep going. Um, but yeah, it's like with writing though, you don't have to, you know, finish work, go scarf down a shitty Tesco sandwich as you run to the, your first gig and then sit there and write your material on your hand, get up on stage, really be nice and be like, I'm so sorry, I have to run to another gig, dash across town. And then it's like, do that all over again. And then you have to be really polite at your last gig and stay until the end because you're, it's a total dick move to go on stage and then leave right away, right? And so I wasn't getting home until like, you know, midnight or something on the night bus. And then the night bus is a whole journey in and of itself. And then you got to wake up and go into your day job the whole next day and like be on it. Um, and then repeat it all over again. Um, so with writing though, it's like you got a few like spare minutes during your lunch break. You can write a few like paragraphs, um, you know, just pop into a coffee shop after work or it's like, oh, I'm suddenly inspired at two in the morning. I'll just write a little bit now. Um, it's much more flexible and on your terms and you don't have to take the night bus anywhere. So it's, um, it's better. <laughs> Is it, it, it'd be interesting to see what's going to happen in comedy because you've got people like um, Trigonometry and like Nigel as well building up massive on following where they effectively have their own crowd, they can do what they want. And it'd be interesting to see how the circuit changes over the years as a result of that and like pile up with TV because you've got all, so many during the pandemic took a massive advantage of the opportunity and the, they can be their own boss. So it'd be interesting to see over the years how things change yeah i think it's so much better than way back when when you couldn't really do this on a on a very easy in a very easy way i know people were going viral and stuff like way back in the early 2000s and stuff but like 
now it seems so much easier with all these apps and things designed to put out your content and promote them and stuff like that. Um, Cause I kind of like it because I know pre pandemic, I was on a scheme with certain people um, for writing and stuff. And it was all run by a big company. <laughs> I'm like trying not to get in trouble. Like, can't put specifics down. Basically I was in a, in a, a scheme to develop writers and um, all of our ideas were filtered through this panel um, who made or break the idea. And they were like, yes or no. And basically I knew what they wanted. So I tailored what I wanted to write for them. And I knew my script was not funny, but I knew that they would find it funny. And so I wrote it. I'm like, I'll do what you want. I'll jump through the hoops. <laughs> but there was another writer in the room who did not get their idea accepted by them because they did not tailor it. And instead they put it online themselves and it became huge. <laughs> it was like, and I'm like, oh, this is really interesting that in a way the proof is in the pudding now because you can just put out your own content. You don't need to jump through all the hoops for all these gatekeepers. Um, and in that sense, I think people are getting more pure comedy that's better. It's not like all edited and filtered through some people who may or may not have the right ideas. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think, yeah, hopefully this whole new trend will make comedy better. And it's certainly, I think, a better time to be a comic um, and just get your things out there if you're brave enough. If you have the the confidence to believe that you're interesting and worth listening to, I think it's it's a good time to exist. Well, I think, yeah, but I think this will transfer across a lot of platforms, like with acting and writing as well. And, and I mean, look at Justin Bieber. He got famous with YouTube. So it, it's... It, It'll be, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, isn't it? It's going to be completely I don't know about writing because, I mean, <laughs> you can put your writing on the internet, but for script writing, you kind of need it produced. And so if you're like me and you don't have your own money to um, like make something, like because I don't have the skills nor the money to make my own content. I know there are other writers who are also directors who know how to like cut and film and have actor friends and stuff but like I mean I could probably get actors to be in it but I don't know how to film I need I don't have the equipment and stuff like that so really to get my writing out there I do need it like funded and paid for and put out somewhere um that's just yeah maybe I sound like I'm just like weak sauce here because I don't do any of that myself but just speaking from a place of on I'm just a person with a with a laptop that's all I am I don't have those things so yeah I, I I'm completely at the whim and mercy of people with money to make myself well with um with stand-up and in terms of like screenwriting I don't know nothing about screenwriting so what's mm -hmm. the what would you say the ABCs of, of developing a an idea in stand-up to developing an idea in screenwriting ah okay i'm like yay stop i'm like i feel confident talking about this yes okay so the big difference between stand-up comedy materials like writing a joke versus writing a script is that a script is a story it goes somewhere and people change at the beginning like from the beginning to the end your character will go on a journey and then if it's a drama they will change if it's a sitcom they may change but they'll reset back to the beginning so that's one thing to focus on because the number one mistake the comedians make when they transition into writing is that in a way with everything you write you are kind of the main character it's an iteration of you so with stand-up comedy 
you're often telling a story about the foibles, maybe of yourself, but mostly of other people or circumstances going on around you. Um, but you're quite, you're, you're as a stand-up comic on stage, telling it from a point of view of not changing, really. It's like um, an observation. And so oftentimes the first script that comedians write, your main character will be boring as shit and it's everyone else around them doing the work and your character will just be observing, um, saying like a funny quip about what's going on, but they're not doing anything. They're very inactive. They're very passive. And so basically, if you think about really good shows, it's characters who are so flawed that they make a terrible, terrible decision at the beginning of it. And then that leads to hilarious consequences and they're responsible for that. So, I mean, an, an example is like, you know, the episode of the IT crowd, um, which I know has been canceled um, in more ways than one. Um, but like, you know, the Chris O'Dowd character, let's just focus on the story. The Chris O'Dowd character makes the terrible decision of using the disabled toilets, as they call it in the episode, um, getting caught in there and then lying that he is disabled. Um, and so he is responsible for what happens afterwards. It's not just that, oh, he, if it was a stand-up comic writing a first script, we would probably be like, guess what this, my best friend did in the toilets and I'm watching this. And you're like, why are we following your story and not your friends? And so anyways, that is one thing I would say that a most important thing to remember if you're transitioning from stand-up comedy into screenwriting is make sure your character is active. They're the one making the bad decision. We're following them for a reason, not just because you're observing through their eyes, but because they're the ones actually with the personality problem. So that, yeah. like, I mean, if I was writing the Cavendish Arms story now, I'd probably put the promoter as the main character rather than the comic who's like the straight, like laced, uh, like person coming in. Um, it probably, I'd, I'd far rather watch a sitcom about the promoter than about me, basically. Um, so, yeah. Because they're the one that has a lot of conflict and a lot of things going at them. And they're deeply yeah. I mean, if you think about Father Ted, right? It's like everybody, why am I quoting so much Gremlin? I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know why that's just coming to mind. Anyways, but if you think about Father Ted, just let's just focus on the work, separate it from the writers. Um, the like Craigie Island, like, you know, all the, the priests and stuff, they're the ones who are like completely batshit. And everybody who visits the island, they're like these straight people who don't understand what's going on. It's like everyone on the island's insane. Everyone comes to visit, they're, they're just completely like normal. But anyways, that's just like, if you notice. A bit like Faulty Towers, isn't it? Where they're, they're completely yeah. mad. Yes, and then, but it's like the guests may be like, what's going on? And it's like, part of the humor comes from seeing like people who aren't part of that world interact with that. So, yeah. I watched a recent episode of John Cleese and um, effectively then guests aren't supposed to bring someone in. So he made, as you said, with the stupid decisions, he wanted to try and catch them out. He knew and the, the person knew that they had someone in there, but he was trying to catch them. So right. what he did was stupid things. He would go into other rooms and start listening in to see on the walls whilst there'll be guests in there. And they'll be like, what are you doing listening to the wall? Oh, I'm just testing the wall. And yeah. And it's like a, a normal person would not listen to the walls of like their guests at a hotel, but it's like that character would. And that's why we, we they're so interesting and dynamic. But it's like, it's so funny talking about old sitcoms because you're like, oh my gosh, like half these people have done very controversial things like are like warranted to be canceled in 2022. So you're just kind of like, yeah, anyways, it's just interesting yeah. about how comedy's changed and stuff. It's just, yeah. 
Well, only Fools and Horses will probably get cancelled with a few of the episodes they put up. Yeah, it's interesting, like how, yeah. But I kind of wonder if, I'm like, is that, anyways, I don't want to get into it. It's just like, yeah, it's just interesting. Now, one thing that I do find, one of the reasons why I want to, and the people that I put on the podcast, I like, I like to talk to people who have a different viewpoint or do things that are completely different to myself. But also, I, one thing that I would not want on a podcast is someone who's just straight white male, um, middle class, does the same jokes as everyone else. Because not I've that there's it. anything wrong with that. No, not, <laughs> not, not, not you. Yeah. Now I'm not saying. When I'm is saying, their time to shine? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's of course. But I'm just saying that I've heard it a lot of it before, so I want to see yeah. differing things. I like to put a bit of variety in the podcast, and that's yeah. who are sort of um, yeah. There's definitely anything wrong about it. you. Do what you do. I'm no judge and jury, mm. but um, what what you say are comics that you really admire not only for being very funny but being very original and unique and there's no one like them and who are writers and people involved in what you are now that are, have the same sort of attributes um so it's interesting it's really changed over the years um who i listen to and what i find funny um one comic so i would say i'd answer that a lot more Enthusiastically, I'd say probably about writers, but back in the day when I was doing stand up, I listened to a lot of Dimitri Martin, Mitch Hedberg, um, Mike Birbiglia, Jim Gaffigan. Um, I did listen to a lot of C Louis C.K. at the time. Um, Maria Bamford, did I already say her? Yes. And Patton Oswalt and um, who else? Did I Pete Holmes. Like, those are the people I listened to probably the most um and now there was like this comic that um my sister introduced me to who is in america and named shen wang i think his name is he writes on fresh off the boat or he was in the writer's room for that he was probably the most exciting discovery i discovered in the last few years i know he's been going for years but i only just discovered him like a year or two ago I thought he was his stuff was original and interesting and really relatable as an East Asian. And he had this one really awesome joke about how he you know, was starving at, I think it was like a train station or an airport or something. I'm sorry, I listened to it a few years ago. I'm butchering this, but he, he was starving. He had a can of tuna in his bag and he really wanted to eat the can of tuna because he wanted the protein and, and everything like that. But he was so scared to eat a can of tuna in a public space, just on its own out of the can because he's like, oh my gosh, am I starting a new stereotype? Um, but I was like, I totally relate to that all the time because everything I feel like I do in the UK because nobody sees me doing it or because I'm such a rare sight sometimes in a certain location. Um, I'm like, if I do something out of the norm right now, I could be creating a whole new stereotype and it's a tragedy and it's something that makes me angry, but he turned it into such a funny joke. Um, and it's really well done. So anyways, that's like a, a good comedian that I really rated from the last few years. Um, in terms of writers, oh my gosh, like there's so many damn good writers out there. So obviously Vince Gilligan is amazing. And I was a huge X-Files fan when I was a kid, like huge. Um, and so like, yeah. And, and sometimes I'll be watching old X-Files still because I'm still such a geek and I'll be like, this was a freaking amazing episode. And it's like, you know, the name Vince Gilligan will pop up and I'll be like, this makes sense. Um, and um, 
well, I, I'm, I love rom-coms. So I, I, I really love like Nora Ephron. Um, so, and all her, all her stuff. Um, and who else have I been, like, honestly, there's so much. And, and I've been reading a lot of nonfiction stuff of late. So like, I've probably been reading like more nonfiction writers than actual writers, but um, what other screen I watch too much stuff. You know when someone puts you on the spot and you're like, I just watch stuff all day long. Like I watch so much TV and film and then someone's like, what's your favorite? And you're like, uh, mine's gone completely blank. <laughs> Can't say. Honestly, I think Shonda Rhimes is a genius in terms of like running a show and creating a compelling story that makes you keep watching. I was like, mm, yeah, like really, really, really good at her job. Um, who else is there that I've been watching a lot of? I don't know. And then also in terms of um, comedians and stuff now, I listen to like quite a few podcasts, but I was listening to a lot of the Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend um, over the pandemic when I was working in a science lab. So that's really good to just put on and work in the lab um, and quite nice. And then I was listening, my, but my I think my latest podcast I really liked is the Dignitaro one because I got to a point where I listened to so many podcasts that I was like, I came home and my poor husband, I'm like, if I have to listen to one more white man's opinion on a subject, I'm like, I'm going to strangle somebody. So my sister's like, check out Tignataro's podcast. And I was like, this is so calming and soothing. And like, anyways, it was just refreshing. Um, but one thing I really like in particular about Tignataro as a stand-up comic and as an interviewer is that, um, She's always Tig, you know, she never bends to be somebody else to somebody else. And I find that really relaxing because I'm such a people pleaser that I will, you know, change my whole personality on a date or something. Just I'm like one of those. So she's always Tig, no matter who she's talking to. And I'm like, just such confidence and just calmness. I just I love it. So that's like my relaxing podcast I listen to, um, which is really good. So those are kind of the things I've been into of late. And I've got a dumb question to ask you now, a really mm. stupid question. How does the process work in a writer's room when you're developing jokes or developing ideas or developing a script? But is it like... Those are all well, different things. Um, for jokes, they happen um, quite organically. It's like, we'll all be looking at plot points and then someone will be like, wouldn't it be hilarious if like, you know, there was a goat behind that door and we'd be like oh my gosh that's and you just start laughing and you that's when you know you've got the joke so oftentimes a writer's room is like I guess it's kind of be like the back of a car on the way up to a gig somewhere in northern England where everyone's just joking around and but the point is that somebody like your script editor in your room will be like writing it down um and so yeah and you have to be quite brave in the sense that, you know, sometimes you'll pipe up and everyone will laugh and sometimes you pipe up and it's crickets. And so, you know, but you got to keep going because people have hired you there to, to throw as many stupid jokes as you can at them so that they can pick and choose the best ones. So if you die on your ass, you have to just keep being brave and just keep coming back. So... That's kind of what it's like for that. But in terms of actual like plot points and structure and or a story idea, that's a lot more cerebral. And you really do, it's like piecing together a puzzle. I mean, I spent my morning in a writer's room where we were literally trying to figure out how, I mean, the sometimes it's all roundabout. So like we had this one stupid joke 
where this kid's creating like a wax figure of their dad, their stepdad in a really creepy way. And it's just hilariously creepy, completely no help to the plot whatsoever. But we were like, how do we end this? And so we're like, how do we bring back the wax prop that we've you know now wanted and it's quite expensive and stuff. And we're like, how do you use that again? So we just sat there for ages trying to figure out how to work this into the plot. And it was like, you know, everyone's just quiet and thinking about it. Um, but you have moments like that as well. So that's kind of how it goes. That's yeah, everyone just chips in ideas in a stupid way. Um, it really depends on how the showrunner runs it as well. So I think it depends how many writers are in the room as to how easy I find it. I'm really not good at speaking in big groups, says the former stand-up comedian. <laughs> I really struggle and I'm much more comfortable in small groups. So the smaller the writer's room, kind of the more you'll get out of me. Um, and most good showrunners will know that certain people like that are are in the room and so they'll really stop sometimes the loudest person who's very confident talking and they'll be like oh what does Joanne have to say about this um and so they'll make sure to take breaks and ask everyone equally um so yeah but oftentimes though it is like the loudest kid wins <laughs> they're the one just going blah, 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 which isn't something like that's bad I mean I'd hire that writer in a heartbeat if they were like that because I need people like that um, it's just a lot easier. So um, but yeah, not everybody can shine in that environment. And I think if you're really good, you'll know to get how to get the best out of each writer. So that's just, um, it is something, it's not like I'm proud that I'm very quiet in a writer's room. I'm trying really hard to work on that. <laughs> I'm trying to be more like brave and say more stuff. But I really do appreciate when people stop and ask me my thoughts because I'm like sometimes I just need a moment <laughs> like or or when it comes to like actually so you basically you brainstorm a bunch of ideas and then they'll go away and be like um people write up these different episodes like you submit like you know the beat sheet for it and like what basically what happens in the story or a little scene by scene or like an outline and then I mean sometimes for a writer it's like that's my time to shine because I'm like okay I can structure the shit out of something on a piece of like a4 um yeah so that's it and then it basically goes through so many drafts and stuff, like just a story outline, a scene by scene and like approval at each stage. And then finally you get to the actual script, which then gets more feedback and approval. So by the time it ends up on TV and stuff, it's kind of gone through so many people and so many rounds of feedback that it's really, you can't take full credit for it as a writer, I feel. I feel like oftentimes maybe about I don't know, six or seven people have really, really contributed. So it's, um, yeah, it's a weird old profession. Uh, mm. So, and then is that how they get a lot of leaks in movies that you see coming up? Because I do not know. I have not worked on anything important enough to leak. I wish I had. Actually, no, yeah, there yeah. is like this one project yeah. that I'm working on where I swear, I swear they'll break my fucking kneecaps if I say anything about it. But it's like for, for three or four year olds, but I've said too much already. Um, but it's like, seriously, it's so top secret that I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. Every page is like watermark. Um, but yeah, I assume maybe. Also theater is completely different. And I, I think film is completely different. I, I think I'm mostly talking about television here. Um, theater, it's like the writer is God. <laughs> it's like, you just go in there and you're like, no, my vision is this. Oh. Write it. Um, no, but you do get feedback and stuff as well. Um, but you definitely get way more of a say. Like, um, but yeah, it's such a weird thing moving between the two. Cause I'm like, is, is this okay? They're like, no, no, no. 
you tell us if that's okay. What? <laughs> so, it's really weird. So, yeah. Oh, it'd be quite a funny little sketch, wouldn't it, of you, what's it called, having you having a play with you as the main character and, like, you were gigging for this promoter and then he becomes an actor in your play and then you get to be the boss of him. Yeah, 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 where you can write, really. Yeah, it's really funny because, like, um, <laughs> I've written stuff for, like, you know, actors or, like, comedians that I know and it's kind of like, like, hmm, might be funny to make them do this. Um, it, yeah, it feels a little sadistic sometimes. Quite fun. Perks of the job. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, John Godilla on the podcast Mm-hmm. And he's what, what he said there is very similar to what you said here when like building an Edinburgh show about mm-hmm. having a building a storyline, like you're having a mid, yeah. beginning, start, and then you have the end bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, if you're interested in all that, there's so many theories on the structure of a story. They're all iterations of like, you know, your three acts, your five acts, whatever it is. Um and there's so many, and I'm so like, as I say, I come from a science background. Also, I'm just like a bit anal of a person anyway, like neurotic. So basically with all the, the story writing textbooks I've read, I've basically taken their theory of story and their beats of a story. Um, and I've plotted them onto spreadsheets. And so when I write a new script, no matter what it is, whether it's for preschool kids and it's like five minutes long, or if it's like a full length film, I will go consult the spreadsheet with all the different tabs, with all the different stories. And I will try and put that story into all the different um, molds that there are available. Um, So like all your things from Save the Cat or like your, um, well, your John York five-act stories or the five-act structures and stuff like that. I'll try and plot it into these and see which one actually fits it. Because pretty much not your story won't fit in every single one, weirdly. Um, And you'll come up with a kind of different story in each one. So in actual fact, if you started with your character of an Asian who's not very Asian um, and you kind of roughly know where they want to go, but you're not 100% sure, and you worked through these different like story structures, like or like the Dan Harmon story circle and stuff like that, you'll end up with a slightly different story with each one. It's really weird. It kind of leads you along a, a shape, but you kind of look and see which one fits the story you want to tell the most, and that's the one that you write. Um, and I would also say, if this sounds really ridiculous to be plotting a story on a spreadsheet prior, (laughs) I was once in a writer's room where we were tasked to write like two or three minute sketches. And I think the other writer thought I was insane because he looked over and I just had like a spreadsheet. And he was like, what is wrong with this woman? Anyhow, and another writer told me afterwards, they're like, somebody told me that you were working on a spreadsheet. I was like, yes, that's true. They weren't making it up. But anyhow, the point is, um, Where's I going with this? Yeah, um, I highly, highly, highly recommend whatever you write, plot it out first um, for the love of all, all things holy. If, if time is your most precious resource and if you do not plot it out, you will get lost. You will get lost. Um, they actually say this in textbooks, like um, I think in How to Write a Movie in 21 Days, she's like, you'll totally get lost in this act uh, if you don't already know where it's going. Um, and it's so true. Mm. <laughs> it's like... I have tried one script in my life where I'm like, no, 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 I'm just going to write and see how I feel and see where the journey takes me. I got so stuck and abandoned. I've never gotten past 40 pages. So that was a mistake I learned um, from. And oftentimes I'll be watching something or reading something and I'll be like, this person did not plot it out. And they got stuck at this point. This is where the story ended. 
And then the fact that they signed a deal made them finish the rest into this garbage. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's it's definitely good to plan it out. Neurotic and crazy as it sounds, make sure you do that prior to starting a single line of dialogue. Hmm. Now, you've really opened something that's really interesting to me. I mean, this is probably going to be annoying for you to talk about, and you've probably heard it again and again. But like in comedy, we always do the thing like pullback reveal or like rule of three type thing. And so like with Jimmy Carr, he's got a well-known joke. I mean, it's not one of my favorites, but he says, um, what's it called? Let me say the reason for why I look like this. My dad's, my mom's Irish and my dad is, no, sorry, my dad's Irish and my mom is Roger Federer. Right. And then you have, uh, what's it called? Lee Nelson, he says, um, what's it called? The Scottish were the top uh, immigrants or whatever. They used to do all the jobs. They work harder. And then the third bit is they speak better English. Mm-hmm. How do those, how does, what you said there about storytelling is still very similar to a joke and how they, they they're similar, but different in a way, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, with a story, in a way, you're revealing a bigger punchline at the end. But within that story, within that, you can have mini structures. I don't know how to describe it. Okay, so if you think about a whole series of a TV drama that you're watching, um, your whole shape of your uh, season will have like a typical story structure. You introduce the characters, and there's a conflict, then there's a climax, then there's like a denouement, and then it kind of all wraps up. Um Within each episode, though, it's like a mini repeat of that structure. So you'll introduce to the problem, conflict kicks off, blah, 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 works up to like a midpoint, climax, then resolution, um, sometimes cliffhanger. Um, But it's like, if you think about it almost like, um, is it a fractal where it's just like a bunch of repeating patterns, but they turn into the bigger overall pattern as well. Um, It's like that. So you can have um, within a sitcom episode, you can have little mini structures. So like within a sitcom episode, you'll use your your rules of three and stuff and or um, all your other rules of comedy to write jokes and write gags and make it funny and stuff. But overall, your whole sitcom episode will still follow a very rigid, not rigid, but like a fairly close to textbook structure um, if you really break it down. I think I would struggle to not break down most stuff no matter how abstract it seems into a natural structure. Like you'll, you'll be able to pick it out. And if you can't, and it still sustains your interest for like a full half hour, that's just amazing. And it's it's possible, I think, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm probably, there's probably some amazing ones out there, but I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Oh no, Midnight Gospel. That's like totally not following any structure. I would watch that for hours. Um, but anyways, yeah. So <laughs> there we go. But yeah, but, but most things I would say fit a structure within a structure um, of a bigger season or within an episode and then t- smaller scenes, even scenes will be quite similar to the whole thing. If you think about a good scene, the characters will change over the scene or like do different things. And even if they revert back to what they were, um, they'll have done something to move the story forward. Um, and yeah, anyways. And that's what keeps us going, the surprise, like in the joke, like, the surprise is what keeps us hooked. Like we were expecting it to go a certain way, but then it goes this way, then it goes that way, then it goes this way, and then it goes boom, big story at the end. And yeah, sometimes. So 
interestingly, like I was, I had this conversation in the writer's room this week, which was about whether or not we should let the audience in on a script, like a plot point before the characters know. And so we were arguing that we should let the audience in on the secret before. So there's a whole thing about Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock talking about suspense. So you could just have a scene of two guys talking. I, I'm totally bastardizing this. I don't remember exactly what he said. So you could have a scene in a cafe um, where two people are looking at a menu and it's really boring and that's what it is. And at the end of the scene, a bomb could go off and you'd be like, what the hell? Um, but if you as the audience see the ticking bomb under the table and they're just slowly pouring through the menu, going point by point, suddenly that scene's interesting, right? Because you know where it's going. You have an expectation. You're like, oh my gosh, stop looking at the starters. There's a bomb under the table. That's a lot more interesting. Similarly, if like, you know, you know that Bernie's dead and weakened at Bernie's and you see a scene play out with it. Like we as the audience are ahead of the characters and that's where the humor comes in. Um, And so sometimes surprise isn't the best thing. Um, You could add, I mean, but you can like, so just like all jokes, they're not all the same. I mean, there's different structures that you can play around with and it's just like that with writing as well. So that's, I mean, these are like, you know, instances but they're not like the set rule that you have to follow yeah 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 which kind of brings us full circle to the whole thing of like yeah i'm like but can you follow the rules and can you make that appeal to people so again you'll have writers who are like yeah like i'm just gonna ignore the five act structure because that's just rigid and it's stifling my creativity and (laughs) i would argue that like i'm like yeah but can you actually follow the five act structure like will your story actually follow that I'm like, because if you're, unless you're capable of actually proving that you can do that, you don't have the the right yet to break that. Um, Or or rather you have to be like super genius to break that and still sustain interest, Um, which I know is possible. And and, and probably theater is your medium. (laughs) I'd argue that like, you'd never get it past all the levels of like TV to get it on TV. Um, Unless you're already like a big name or something, but like for nobody like me, like good luck trying to pass that through script editors. Um, but yeah, maybe in theater you could, as a nobody, write something that doesn't follow a five act structure and is amazing and and gets to be seen. So yeah, if you have that script, send it to the theater, not to not to some sort of TV show. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask one more question on that. Is that so? What was it about? Did you say Moonlight? You said there was a play or there was a program that broke all the rules. Oh, Midnight Gospel. Yeah, what was it about Midnight Gospel that made it so captivating despite it breaking all the rules? Well, it was because I was writing scripts nonstop. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was working full time as a neuroscientist um, and writing full time as well. And I was literally like sleeping in three hour stints so that I could wake up and write more so that I could sleep again and then go to work. Um, it was quite intense. <laughs> and I told myself, anyways, I'm, I'm out of that now, thankfully, because I told myself at the end of it all, I'm like, if I make enough to pay rent after taxes, I will, I will quit the day job. Um, it took, I did work, it, uh, get to that point and then I was too chicken to do it. And then it, it took a terrible day at work to get to that point. But anyhow, the point is, um, during that time, I listened to an interview of, I think it was Armando Iannucci and he was he was like oh they're like what are you watching now he's like weirdly I'm watching this show so I was like oh I'll check it out and so because my head was so full of storylines plot lines following all these different damn structures and stuff to sit down and watch something with no structure or plot was so relaxed 
getting the name of it right. As I say, um, oh, sorry, is my connection unstable? Um, as I say, like my, I'm so bad when I'm put on the spot for memory, like names, faces, quotes, whatever. But um, the animation on it is really like quirky and kind of psychedelic and it's just infinitely watchable. It's so creative. And they talk just, it's almost like just a conversation about life and death kind of thing um, in a kind of philosophical way. Um, and, and about grief and things like I was crying one episode again cry, why am I talking so much about crying I swear I barely cry um but it was it's just um it's a really relaxing show if you're a writer <laughs> that's all I can say it's like totally worth checking out if you read way too many scripts or write too many scripts check out that show Midnight Gospel on Netflix Effectively, this the sort of the lesson with all of it, and the, is that doing your own thing, like knowing the basics of like what you said there about the five that, but building your own thing. Is that that's basically what you're saying, isn't it? Using not following it blindly, but doing it obviously using it, but mm -hmm. doing things your own way rather than just be like doing it without thinking about it. Um. Well, definitely that. I would find though, if you get lost, they're very handy to go back to. Um, and that is kind of the way they was taught to me. Like when I was in the BBC writer's room, they were like, you know, usually if they're doing an episode of something, like say, um, I think it's like Casualty or Holby City or something. And they were like, if the, the story is just not working, they're like, why isn't it working? They'll go back to like those structures and kind of put the story into that and be like, oh, we're missing this beat. And then, it'll kind of work. Um, what you're saying though, about like, you know, doing it your own way, that is just, yeah, I would say that's so important to be true to your own voice. Um, because if you try and write like somebody, or if you want to write about something that you think is commercial, like you're, you're like, words out that the BBC is after a sitcom about a bear in an airplane. You're like, must write a sitcom about a bear in an airplane. Like, it'll be, well, like nine times out of 10, it'll be awful because it's not what you want to write. Your heart's not in it. It's not your voice. Um, and it'll come across in your writing. You can't really hide it. Like if you're not interested in something, it's so obvious and it'll, it, you just won't have that level of energy um, and extra oomph in it unless you actually, yeah, anyways. So yeah, definitely do it your own way and make sure you want to do it. And, and otherwise also, there are so many good writers out there. So like, why should someone pay for your writing unless it's in your voice? And so people are really, it's like stand-up comedy. It's like people are paying for your voice. That's what you should be sticking to and writing and putting into things. So that, no matter how much you follow the structure. <clears throat> now with like having a career in the arts, what would you say, um, what would you say being a screenwriter is giving you? And how do people find out about you? Um, I would say giving me, being a screenwriter has given me freedom in, in a huge way. Because, yeah, previously I was tied to my day job for years. It took me, well, what, I stopped stand-up in 2013. So it's 2022 and I've only been a full-time writer for less than a year. So it's taking me that long to climb out of my day job um, and that security blanket. Um, so yeah, now I have a lot more freedom and I get to like do my passion for a living, which is kind of exciting. I know a not a lot of people can say that. 
Um, and I would also argue coming from a family where I don't often get to express myself like and they're really lovely, really. It's just like I I just don't it's as the dynamics work, I'm the quiet one. Um, so it's kind of given me a means of expressing myself. Um, I once compared it to like trying to get my parents' attention. So like me and my sisters, it's like feeding time at Jurassic Park, and my parents' attention is the dangling goat, and my sisters and I are the velociraptors. And um yeah, basically writing is my way of escaping the enclosure and snacking on the public instead of the, the goat. Um, because my sisters will get the goat um in this <laughs> metaphor. So, anyways, that's 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 what writing's kind of done for me. Um, and it's also pushed me into things that I just never thought was possible. Cause like honestly, I'm like a what like my parents are immigrants to like a small like city in, in Canada. Nobody I knew worked in film. Like for me, I didn't even know those were actual jobs. Like growing up, I just assumed that was some magical, I don't know why, I just didn't think it was a real job. <laughs> and it wasn't until I moved to London and I was like doing stand-up comedy and then I meet people I'm like oh my gosh the BBC is like a real thing I'm I'm standing in the building where I'm like look at these people coming in and out of work how weird is that they work in television I'm like how novel um and stuff that I started looking into and I'm like look people write these things that I love um and it's like you know I loved TV like my whole or like film and TV my whole life like to the point where my mom my Asian mother cut cable um, for years, because she, I once said to her, TV is my only joy in life, and she cut it because that was wrong. Um, <laughs> so, as a result, I'm like this freak comedy writer where everyone's like, oh, you know, in Friends, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, she cut cable right when Friends came out. So I missed all the like, you know, hubbub around Friends for the first few years and had to catch up pre like streaming things. So like I had to really like get Friends to videotape episodes of things for me to keep up with tv that's how much i loved it and how hard it was so forgive me if i don't know all the friends episodes now um but yeah that's that's kind of my life but it's yeah now it's given me a way into that where i'm like i get to do this for other people so as much as i love tv like and, and film and theater and stuff like that it's like i get a chance to do that for other people now so i guess that's kind of like what that's done for me but yeah um what was your other question <laughs> how do people find out about you how do how do they find it? Like, as in, what can they follow and stuff like that? Or how? Yeah. Do you... Or get in contact with you if they want to work with oh. you or anything. Just. Um, I know my name. My name is so hilariously generic. It's really hard to find me on the internet. If you type in Joanne Lau writer, all my stuff will pop up. Um, so I don't. I'm not much of a social media person because, um, as I say, I often don't feel that that I'm interesting enough to to. Um, have anything to put out in the world I've never done an Edinburgh special because and everyone's like why not you did comedy for so many years I'm like I just don't have enough to say for an hour I just don't have like just exclusively me but anyways the point is I, I am on Twitter mostly I just retweet stuff that other people tweet at me um and occasionally I post about a neighborhood cat that I'm obsessed with that looks like Batman called that I've named Bat Cat so my whole feed is retweets of stuff that people have tagged me on and Bat Cat so that's me on Twitter um, and I am again on Instagram, but I don't post anything at all, like even less on that. And, and I have a private TikTok account that I exclusively use to make videos of my dog. <laughs> it's like, so I'm, I'm, yeah, but yeah, your best luck is um, Googling Joanne Lau writer and then getting in touch with my agent <laughs> if you want. All right. So guys, you know where to go. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, share it with your friends, subscribe, and most importantly, give a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes. 
and if you if it wasn't for your taste you know don't spread any negativity just tell it to your dog and don't don't let me know about it your poor dog don't don't spread it to the dog he knows your feelings <laughs> oh okay don't do that just keep it to yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that's been joanne lao and i'll see you guys later Thank <music> you.